This podcast is brought to you by Podcast Nation. Hello, everyone. My name is Erin Trelore, and I am the host of Raw Beauty Talks. We're taking you behind the highlight reel of the world's biggest influencers and wellness gurus to get a raw glimpse of what beauty, health, and wellness look like in today's world so that you can feel your absolute best in your body and in your life. Well, today we have somebody on the podcast who I've known for a few years now, but I haven't had a chance to really sit down and pick her brain about her area of specialty and the incredible work that she's doing. And I'm so excited that you are all going to get to join in on this conversation with us because we are diving into body image, eating disorders, all the things. Today on the show, we have Hillary McBride, who is a registered clinical counselor in private practice in Vancouver, BC, and she is a PhD candidate. You are like one week away from having your PhD, right? I know. As I'm right on the cost. In fact, by the time this comes out, I'll probably probably be Dr. McBride. So oh. it's, it's we're getting close down to the wire. Congratulations. That is Thank a huge you. accomplishment. I know how hard you've been working on it. So amazing. Dr. McBride. I like the sound of that. That is, that is <laughs> nice. Okay. So you um, do clinical work. You've also done a ton of research. You do speaking, you do writing, you have an amazing social media, Instagram feed that I feel like just always has the most thought provoking posts. And what's your handle? Oh, at Hillary Leanna McBride. Okay. Two L's in my first name, two N's in my middle name, Hillary Leanna McBride. So you can go check that out. I mean, you look like you're 16 years old. How have you accomplished all of this in such a short period of time? You know, what's funny. I was out getting a drink with a friend. Like I get carded all the time, but you know, what's so funny about that. Actually, I had really bad acne when I was in, in my teens. And I remember my mom saying, you know what? All of the oil that's in your skin is giving you all of this acne is going to keep your skin so moist and supple for the rest of your life. And my mom does not look her age. Not that there's anything wrong with aging. And in fact, like I'm so looking forward to wrinkles and all of that, but I do have a kind of ambiguous age. I often people just from looking at me, people are like, are you 45 or 15? I can't <laughs> tell. <laughs> well, that's so funny that you you always get carded because I went in to get some wine before we went on our family holiday the other day. And I was like, oh, shoot, I forgot my ID at home, which is so standard for me. I'm always driving around without my ID. Somebody hopefully won't hear this who's a cop and arrest me. But anyways, I went in and I'm like, oh my God, I don't have my ID. I'm going to get ID'd. And like, I just need to get this task off my list. So I went and got it anyways. And I went up to the counter and he didn't ID me. And I was like offended. I was like, what? <laughs> the sign on the thing says, if you look 30 or younger, we will ID you. And I was like, oh my God, I am officially, I'm 34, but I mean, so I should look over 30. But anyways, it was pretty funny. Okay. We can talk about IDing all day long, but important things to discuss. Okay. So you've already won some awards for the work that you've done. You were recently awarded the International Young Investigator Award for your research contributions that, I mean, have happened so early in your career. In 2017, which I can't believe that was two years ago, you published your first book, Mothers, Daughters, and Body Image, Learning to Love Ourselves as We Are, which we're going to basically dive into what this book is all about throughout the whole episode, but we'll also link to it in the show notes so that if you're interested in getting a copy, you can. Okay, 
let's right. dig into it. it. What my first question is, what are some of the main reasons that so many of us are struggling with this crazy thing? Like this body image concern can be so debilitating, take up so much mental space, and it's just our body, but like why are so many of us struggling with it? Mm-hmm. It's such an important question. And I think what would be so easy to say off the bat is media. Media is the problem, but actually media is just a vehicle. It's a vehicle for information. And so if we're going to point the finger at media, we also have to say, well, what kind of messages is that media that we're consuming? What are those messages saying? What's happening to us when we take them in? Are we thinking about them reflectively? Are we taking them in blindly? Do we have a chance to disagree with those messages? But media is just one of the pathways through which we get messages about our bodies. We call this in body image research and theory, the tripartite model of influence. And basically the tripartite model says these messages that there are certain kinds of bodies that are good, that they look a particular way, you know, I could even articulate that the construction of the ideal body for a long time has been thin, white, young, perhaps even areas of the body that are used for sexual objectification. Those are enhanced in some way, but a disappearing female body. And that message is communicated through media as well as through parents or caregivers and then through peers, through people who are around us whose opinions we value. So we've got these messages, I might call them like sexual objectification messages or messages influenced by patriarchy, where society is really framed around the idea that women aren't as valuable. And if they are valuable, it's only because of their bodies. There's all of that stuff going on behind the scenes. But I think that if we look at it, maybe even from a maybe more existential or spiritual psychological lens, what we would say is that there is a question that we have that all of us carry. And this question is, am I enough? Am I lovable? Am I good enough? Do I matter in this world? And if we have we haven't had that question answered and we're living our lives in a way, in such a way that we're trying to answer that question, the messages through the media say, well, if you buy this product or if you look this way, maybe you will be valuable. So if we stack all of these messages on top of a thirst and a longing to know that we matter, that we are loved, that we have enoughness, then I think that it makes sense that we'd be trying to answer these questions of enoughness by manipulating our body. And then if we thought that our bodies were a way to feel good enough, then we would probably feel bad about ourselves if our bodies didn't look like this constructed ideal. So it's a mix of being this media saturated world with certain messages about our bodies, but stacked on top of a contingent self-worth, this idea that we have to earn our enoughness and that might come through what we do with our body. I mean, there's so much to unpack here and it's so complicated. So where do we even begin? I mean, there's so many different people fighting this fight. Some people who are trying to teach self-worth, therapists, counselors who are helping to plant those seeds of self-worth and feelings of I am enough. And then people who are, you know, lighting the torch against media in particular. Do we need to be hitting it from all angles? Is there anything that you've found that is particularly useful in taking the first steps forward? Yeah, I would say that media is an easy one that we can have control over how much we access, particularly when it comes to our phones. So if we know that, let's just say a person is scrolling through their phone and they're looking on Instagram and they see people's lives and bodies and feel poorly about themselves, it's easy enough to turn the phone off, to put it away. We can't necessarily control the cultural context that we're in though. We can't necessarily control the messages that are on buses 
that we see drive by us or the things that we see on TV. I mean, we could choose what kind of programs we wanted to watch and what movies we were engaging in. But I think for the most part, we have to think about the areas where we have choice and control. And one of them is how much media am I consuming and what are the messages that I'm getting? Do I want to keep engaging with those messages or are they having a harmful or hurtful effect on me? But the other thing that we can do is start to think critically about those messages. So when we see images, when we hear stories about bodies, about certain kind of bodies being good or certain kind of bodies being bad, it's our responsibility to say that we're going to try and think critically about that. That if we want to change how we feel about ourselves, we might not be able to change the whole culture all at once by ourselves, but we might be able to take responsibility for our thoughts. We might be able to take responsibility for not viewing media that makes us feel so, so bad about ourselves. I think that's so, so important. I have a question for you though. So I Mm. always have this conversation with my husband. He's like, why do you buy us weekly? And why are you watching Kardashians? This is so against the message that you're promoting and everything that these magazines stand for. But sometimes I find that it's just so enjoyable and indulgent and like, it's so not deep. It's just easy to consume. I get sucked into it. I get sucked into the drama of it and the illusion of it. And even though I know all of these things, it's still, I wouldn't even say addictive, but like, why is it so easy for us to make choices that we know are harmful for us? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I think about the economy of energy and how in our daily lives, We are, as people, doing more and more than we've ever done before. We're up later. We're working longer hours. We're working more. We're traveling more when we're on our time off. You know, we're viewing more images. We're reading more content. You know, everyone's got a podcast in their ear all the time. Mm -hmm. And when you think about how much space that takes up on the inside of us, sometimes at the end of the day, it feels really good to do something that doesn't take anything of us right? If you can imagine, like you work hard, you're thinking critically, you're engaging, you know, you're doing your exercise, your mindfulness, you've got the expense report due at work. Do you want to come home and listen to 15 TED talks that challenge your perception of the world? Like sometimes you don't, right? Sometimes you were like, yeah, I want to learn something. I want to dig in. I think that supporting media institutions that constantly pick apart other people's bodies and portray certain kinds of bodies as being ideal and don't really give us a three-dimensional view of people, I don't think that's good for us, but it makes sense that we do it because we're tired and at the end of the day, we don't want to do something that takes more from us. Mm -hmm. The challenge though is looking at what doesn't take something from us is not the same as looking at what adds something to our lives. So let's just say you go to work, you're at work all day, you're having a really hard time, you come home and you just want to binge on Netflix, which would be a kind of like similar cognitive equivalent to reading through one of these magazines. Like you're not engaging in critical thinking. You can just let it passively happen and eat a bowl of popcorn. Like you're not working hard. But the problem is that doesn't add to our lives. It doesn't give us a richer sense of self. It doesn't make us feel better about our bodies or doesn't necessarily model healthy communication between people. And we live in this fantasy world. So fantasy is fine as long as we know that it's fantasy. And as long as we're able to, to some degree, realize that the real world doesn't look like the images in the magazine. But what I want to challenge us to do is is think about what we could do with our time that actually would add something to us. So 
I know I'm going to sound like a, this is a classic therapist response. Instead of coming home and turning on Netflix and doing something mindlessly, what would it like to do something mindfully? To sit in silence for a few minutes and go, oh, what do I feel grateful for today? And maybe that takes a little bit of work, but in terms of the cost benefit analysis, the benefits that you get from doing that mentally far outweigh the energy that it takes to do that. Same with going for a walk. Like sometimes when we get home, we just don't want to put our shoes on. But when have we done that and then been like, oh gosh, I wish I didn't go for a walk. That was awful. I wish I was at home reading a magazine. Like for the most part, when we do the hard things, they feel demanding right off the get-go. But after we've done them, we're like, wow, that felt really enriching and engaging for me. Versus watching two hours of Kardashians and eating a bucket of ice cream where you usually finish at the end and feel like I always feel like less energized, more depleted and just, yeah, like it hasn't filled me up. So I love that. I, that concept of what can you do that is mindful and going to fill you up versus something that is going to deplete you. And is just mindless. Take away, take away, yes. put that in your toolbox. What can you do? I mean, there's so many things that I have on my list, like whether it's meditation, going for a walk, cooking dinner slowly, which is sometimes hard to do with two kids who always seem to want to be picked up whenever I'm making dinner, but just like actually preparing dinner and smelling the herbs that I'm using and really like acknowledging the ingredients that I have. Reading a novel for me is a form of escaping in a way, but that doesn't feel mindless. Like it takes some action to read. And so I find that can be really fueling. Fast forward to the end of 2024. Think of your goals for a second. What can you do right now to give yourself the best chance of succeeding? If you want to learn a new language, you absolutely should get Babbel. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that really don't help you speak the language. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's designed by real people for real conversation, and Babbel's tips and tools are approachable, accessible, rooted in real-life situations, and delivered with conversation-based teachings so you're ready to practice what you learned in the real world. If you're heading to another country, Country anytime soon, start using Babbel a few weeks before you go to learn basics like how to order food, ask for directions, speak to merchants without having to consult language apps while you're away. So fun. Here's a special limited time deal for our listeners. Right now, get 55% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners at babbel.com slash raw beauty talks. Get 55% off at babbel.com slash raw beauty talks. That's spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash talks. Rules and restrictions may apply. This episode is brought to you by Lola V, an award-winning hair care line founded by the fabulous Jennifer Aniston. Jen got tired of the same old struggle we all face, choosing between hair products that work and ones that are actually good for us. With Lola V, that dilemma is history. We all put our hair through the ringer. That's why it's crucial to have products that not only repair the look of the damage, but also shield your locks from future harm. Enter Lola V's bestsellers, the Glossing Detangler and the Perfecting Leave-In Conditioner. They're your hair's new best friend 
friends. For a limited time, you get 15% off your entire order at lolavie.com. Just use the code rawbeautytalks at checkout. Lolavie is all about naturally derived plant-based goodness, no silicone, sulfates, parabens, or gluten, and of course, cruelty-free and vegan. That's 15% off your order at lolavie.com with promo code rawbeautytalks. You can only use one promo code per order and discounts can't be combined. After you purchase, they'll ask you where you heard about them. Tell them I sent you over. Do you have any other suggestions? You know, I don't want to romanticize mindfulness in such a way that it's like, it feels effortless and easy. The point is that when we're trying to make changes though, we can think about using our time a little bit differently. So instead of coming home and watching two hours of mindless TV, give yourself an hour and a half to watch mindless TV, but try to do half an hour of something thoughtful first. You can still have the indulgence, but try to add something in that replenishes you. Do it before or after. Other strategies, like I really simply like rubbing lotion on my feet. To me, it feels so good to get home at the end of the day and feel that soothing touch. And I think that that'll probably feed into something we talk about a little bit later in the interview, which is we treat our bodies as these objects that carry around who we really are, which is our brain or our thoughts. And when we get into our bodies and treat our bodies as our territory, as our soul's address, as the place where we are fully us, that means that we're going to try and engage in our body in really caring and mindful ways. So I love rubbing lotion on my feet or having a cup of tea or sitting. We, we had a balcony for the first time ever living, you know, living in apartment life and having this balcony and sitting outside when I get home before rushing off to something else has meant that I can feel, feel my breath in my lungs and feel some presence and take in the goodness of the world around me. And it might seem maybe too simplistic, or it might seem a little bit more like a chore at first, but we have really great empirical or scientific evidence about keeping a gratitude diary or journal. So even on your phone, you know, getting home at the end of the day, either before you go to bed or before you do something mindless, ask yourself, what are three things that I feel really grateful for today? And it could be, you know, I smelled the lavender walking to my car. It could be, I did put that lotion on my feet or the herbs smelled so good when I was putting them into the dish. And we know that there's evidence that doing that for about two weeks every single day is significant enough to actually change some of the neurological structures that you have that are responsible for how you feel about yourself in the world. It's so simple. And I find for me that I like doing it at the end of the day, right before I crawl into bed and Scott and I will do it together or I'll just do it by myself. And it's such a nice little ritual and nice way to unwind at the end of the day at a time when our minds so often are you know, all a flurry with thinking about what's coming the next day and what happened that day. And so it's a great way to kind of slow things down and tune into a really abundant mindset before bed and before sleep. Think of three things that maybe even one, if three feels too many, but something that makes you feel grateful, pause what you're doing, take a deep breath in, savor that, really bring that to your mind, even right now to be in your own life, to be present with yourself and to feel some gratitude. We've talked about gratitudes. We've talked about mindfulness and doing mindful activities. Now, it's been interesting because when I was in high school and when sort of my body image stuff started to pop up, the ideal body and media was a tall, thin woman. And at the time, I was that. But 
you know, my body still didn't look like the pictures in the media. It still didn't match up. Now, all of a sudden in media in the last four or five years, we're starting to see a lot more curves and like this round booty and these like big boobs or actually even the other day, somebody said to me, oh, big boobs aren't in anymore. Small boobs are in again. And so what is the cycling, you know, changes of body image that we experience uh, over years and years and years? And is this just going to keep happening forever? Is there any way that we can stop it and just see more (laughs) diversity in media? (laughs) I would say that on trend, there are two things that are happening. One is that we're still seeing like increasingly thin, underweight images in media, but that we're also seeing the presence of slightly more diversity, which is great. That's really helpful. But if the only way that we're engaging with those images is to give ourselves another thing to compare ourselves to, then it doesn't really matter how diverse or how little diversity there is if we're still using the images that we see as a litmus test to know if we feel good enough about ourselves or not, that's what the problem is. So I think that we can vote with our wallet. We can tell companies, hey, you need to have more diverse bodies in your advertising. Or how come there's only white or able or tall or thin women in these advertisements? Like, I want you to know that as a consumer of your product, I devalue your product because of how you portray the female body. Yes. I write letters. I write emails. I post things on Twitter or on Instagram where I'm contacting companies directly and saying, where are the plus size women in these advertisements? Where are the women of color? So we can do that for each other. And in doing so, what we're saying is the consumer, we make your company run. And if we're not happy, then you need to get on board with changing this. Mm. But more importantly than that, we have to stop comparing ourselves to the images that we see. And we need to remember, no matter what we see, that most images have been retouched or edited in some way. And that even those people themselves don't look like that. So regardless of whether it's, you know, larger breasts or smaller breasts or taller or leaner or whatever the story is, if we aren't learning how to be okay with ourselves as we are, and if we're not pushing for more diversity, and if we're not thinking critically about those images, it doesn't matter what the images are. We'll still be stuck in this cycle of trying to chase a story of what a body looks like that somebody else is getting to define. Mm. Now, I've heard that comparison is something that is innately within us to some capacity because in order to survive in the tribes that we were in centuries ago, we had to know sort of our place in the tribe. And so... I'm wondering how do you kind of break that pattern of comparison that sometimes just feels so natural to slip into? I think what I will say is that there is an element of comparison that has been helpful, but not in a judgmental, shame-based way. That comparison of being like, oh, you and I are like or unlike each other in these ways is not a judgmental, shame-based approach to comparison. It's when the comparison is related to an ego structure that's about making someone else small so we can feel big. That is actually counterproductive for our evolutionary survival because we need to work together to actually accomplish anything. So what's more meaningful and significant from a survival or evolutionary biology perspective is actually collaboration. It's seeing how we are like each other. It's seeing how I can help you and how you can help me. So I would argue that comparison from a judgmental perspective has never been part of our survival, but rather 
maybe just data analysis, like, oh, you're taller and I'm shorter. You can reach the top of the tree, which doesn't have a quality that says like there's a moral judgment attached to the difference. That's what I'm trying to articulate. We can compare without moral judgment. And that just means noticing like, oh, Aaron, you have a different hair color than I do, but without the story that says, and somehow that means that you're better or that I'm better. It's just noticing beauty and diversity and the intricacies of how we are all so, so uniquely ourselves. I think that's so well said and so well articulated. I completely understand now the difference between the two things. I'm reading Brene Brown's Rising Strong book, and she has a really beautiful tool that she uses in it where when you're noticing things like jealousy or anger or resentment coming up and it's surrounding a story that you've created. You can add to the beginning or end of your sentence. The story I'm telling myself is that because you are smaller than me, you are better than me. The story I'm telling myself right now is because you didn't call back, I am not worthy. The story I'm telling myself. So you start to create, I think with that one simple phrase, a little bit of distance and separation between the belief or the thought or the story that you've told yourself and the reaction that you have to it. And then the next step is to say, okay, so now that that story is there, is there another story that I could tell that would actually bring me more into fullness, bring me more into connection with someone that isn't based on fear or anxiety or insecurity? Because I think that for the most part, our stories of comparison are about, again, to come back to this, the enoughness question. Like if enoughness is this totally nebulous, undefined thing, how do we know that we have it? How do we know that we're loved and enough? And we look at the messages that we see around us that might point to say, well, that person looks loved. So are we like them or unlike them? Are we closer to the ideal than they are or further away from the ideal than they are? But if we can start to see that the comparison often when it's judgment or judgment based, or like there's a moral assignment to the difference that we see, if we start to notice that we're doing that, we can ask ourselves like, what is it that I'm trying to get by feeling better than someone? What is it that I'm trying to get or know about myself by seeing how, how someone is better than me? Is that me and just the enoughness question showing up to point me to and remind me about some self-work that I need to do, about connecting on a deep grounded level to my unconditional value? Is it that I am still looking to feel like there's only enough goodness to go around and I've got to get it before you get it so that I can be okay? Or can I shift my story to believe that we can be different and all still good, that your bigness and fullness does not take away from mine, and that you can look more like an ideal that's all just part of this made-up story anyway, (laughs) but we can both still be lovable and beautiful? Oh, I absolutely love that. How do we know that we're enough when it is so nebulous? And but, but where do people start who haven't done the therapy and who are just, you know, tuning in and thinking this is something right now that maybe I need to work on? Yeah, that's right. What is such an important question. And I think really this is the place that most of us carry a wound underneath all of the the ways that we try and cope with our pain, there is a story about, am I lovable? Am I enough? Is there room for me in this world? Do I matter? That that's underneath so much of it for us. So I'm glad you're asking that question. One of the simple 
maybe intellectual exercises or what we could call like a cognitive experiment that I have people do when they're starting to try to wrap their mind around this is, is to have them think about a baby. And this is really easy if you're a parent because you've seen a baby and you have your baby and you have all of these feelings that come up about this baby. And if you're not a parent and thinking about a niece or a nephew, or even, you know, if you have a friend who had a child and you got a chance to hold that baby, did you look at that baby, whether it was your, or your own or somebody else's and say, oh gosh, I wish they lost a little bit more weight. <laughs> or did you look at that baby and think like, well, they don't have any accomplishments yet. So we're going to see how this plays out. Or do you look <laughs> at that baby and say like, but other baby had longer toenails or short, like <laughs> what we don't do this with kids. We look at them and say, there is a life and it is magical. And something came out of nothing. There is a human here who I want to love and protect. We hold their necks in special ways because we don't want to wreck their necks and we want to protect their brains. And we, you know, get up in the middle of the night to feed them, not because they're doing good things for us and for the world, but just because they are. So that's where we start. We take that exercise and we say, imagine this baby, all of the conditions of worth that we put on ourselves, we would never put on this baby. And then here's where it gets really really funky. Think about yourself as having been that baby, right? Like you came into this world and people went, Oh, I'm so glad she's here. I cannot wait to meet her. And you, that had nothing to do with weight, size, skin color, ability. You were just there and you were loved. And there is a simple truth about being alive that we know at the beginning and we know at the very end, and we seem to forget it in the middle. And that's where we're at. If you're listening to this podcast, you're listening because you're in the middle and maybe there's some part of you that forgot something that has always been true about you and will always be true about you. And we can go back to that example of the very beginning to know we all feel that way about life. And we are not so special that we are different from every other baby that was born. And somehow every other baby is, you know, loved and lovable and inherently valuable. And we are different. Like, no, you're not so special that you get a different set of criteria and everyone else is valuable, but you're not. That's just not how it works. All of us were born valuable, sacred, precious. And the problem happened when we grew up. And we forgot that that was true about ourselves, or we learned a different story, which said, yeah, but you've got to do this to really get there. And I just want to say like, those are just stories. Those are stories. And we get to, as responsible adults who are consciously involved in our engagement with the world, we get to say at some point, the stories that I was told about my enoughness are not true. And they were actually just stories that were handed down to me from other people who didn't know their enoughness. But we get to decide, maybe we were always okay. And we get to choose to tell that story to other people to create this like kind of critical mass that starts to shift us away from the contingent self-worth and all of the doing that we try and engage in just to earn our goodness. Mm, that is beautiful and incredibly well-spoken. And I feel like if everyone who's listening, you know, just rewind and listens to that one more time, it's the essence of the whole message, the whole podcast episode, everything that we're doing at Raw Beauty Talks. So thank you for articulating it so perfectly. 
My next question, though, is why is this so important? Because sometimes this work can feel really hard and it can feel almost impossible or like you're never going to get there. And what if you get there, but everyone else isn't doing the work? And so they are all just like continuing <laughs> down the path of <laughs> least resistance and in essentially opposition of you. Like as you go down this path, the majority of people aren't necessarily going down it. So you're flowing against the stream. So what is the point? Where's the value in it? Why do we even invest time in this? Well, I could, I could flip that back to you and say, if it didn't matter, you wouldn't be doing this podcast and there wouldn't be listeners. And the point is that, like I was saying before, media is not a problem. It's how we use it and the messages that are communicated through it. So one of the beautiful things about our access to media this day and age is our ability to find people who are like us so that even if we feel like we're swimming upstream, then we have people next to us, even if just in our ears, even if just on our Instagram feed, even if just on Twitter or, you know, whatever it is that remind us we may not be in the same city or in the same situation or the same family, but there is a current that is increasingly building that is saying this system and the stories about our bodies, they have not worked and it's time for something new. There's a a mystic that whose work I really like, his name's Matthew Wright. And he says, we are either going to wake up hand in hand all together or not at all. Mm. And what I love about that is that we are connected to each other. It's acknowledging the sense that there is a current that is happening. And the reason you and I are on this podcast together, the reason I've written a book and it's sold how it has, and you have the work you do, and I have the practice I do is because people are hungry for this. So there are people out there and this is how culture changes as we get enough people singing the same song that instead of one voice, it's a choir and the choir gets loud enough to drown out the other voices. So I think it, it does matter and I think it is possible, but we need to find ourselves armed with resources that remind us that we're not alone, even when we're feeling alone because, you know, we're the only person in our office who refuses to engage in diet culture talk, or we're the only person in our family who says, you know, I'm, I'm not going to lose weight for that thing, or I'm not going to look at those images, or I'm not going to body shame that person. We have to remember that we are not alone, even when we feel we are alone. Mm, yeah, no one listening to this podcast is ever alone. I'm always a DM away. I know Hillary's <laughs> always an email away. We'll make sure you have her contact information too. And I can personally attest, I asked that question, but with a deep knowing that this work is so incredibly important. And I know you do. <laughs> I know, I know. I was asking for the people who are wondering. And also, like, I, of course, too, have moments where I'm like, oh, it'd just be easier to get the breast implants than to have to, like, fall in love with these mom boobs. You know, we all have those moments. But then I critically think about it and wonder, you know, why am I thinking this way? And what can I give gratitude for? And what message do I want to send my kids? And this isn't saying anything against people who go that route at all. It's just my own reflection. What I can say, though, is when I think back to Aaron as a 16-year-old who was, you know, counting calories and just mortified about the cellulite on my thighs and constantly comparing myself to other women, in particular women in media, that compared to where I was then, and sorry, now how I'm feeling compared to where I was then is night and day and my ability to show up and stand in my purpose and to sh 
to expand beyond my body is is such a gift and so freeing and allows me to experience life at such an elevated level that brings so much more joy and happiness and love. And yes, there's anger and sadness and moments when I don't feel my healthiest all mixed in there, but it is just such a more beautiful way to live. It feels like someone took a lid that was crushing down on top of my body and lifted it up. And all of a sudden I could see the stars. I could see the sky. I could move my body around. I could express myself. Everything felt more expansive. And so we have a very short life to live. We have a very short time on this planet earth. And so my feeling around it is that it is the greatest gift that you can have to go onto this journey of self-love to practicing finding your self-worth and that through that you really start to truly get to live so that's why i do the work yeah this work is so important to me that i decided to put together a free webinar for you with a five-step strategy to help you overcome the battle with your body and food. If you're craving a better relationship with your body, if you're finding that you're constantly stuck in a cycle of restrictive eating or overeating, promising yourself that you're gonna start fresh tomorrow, if you find that there's a voice of self-criticism in the back of your mind that is constantly bringing you down, or if you feel like you might be missing out on life because you're trapped in thoughts about food and your body, then this webinar is for you. And I want you to invest an hour of time to come join me for the five steps to end the battle with your body and food. You can head to rawbeauty.co backslash webinar to save your spot in the free training. I'll be teaching you how to feel calm, free, and confident in your body without having to lose a single pound, how to put an end to emotional eating, even if you feel like you have tried 100 times, 100 different ways. This is completely different. We're also going to help you free your mind from constant thoughts about food and your body so that you can start living life and feel good in this home that you've been given. Head on over to rawbeauty.co backslash webinar to save your spot in this free training now. I can't wait to see you there. You're so right is that there is this preoccupation with our body to try and get our enoughness but the irony is it keeps us from living. Like life happens not just in managing our appearance. That is a, a game that we are playing, but that's not real life. That is not, is certainly not the thing that makes us feel alive with a kind of existential vitality. And so when we are focused and preoccupied on managing our appearance, we miss out on all of the other good things. Like I certainly know I, you and I haven't talked a lot about my story, but I've recovered from disordered eating and had quite a vicious battle with eating disorders and other mental health issues related to that. And I think about all of the time that I missed out on, like hating myself. And I think about all of the things that I missed out on because I was afraid to go to the party because of how much I was worried what it would look like if I ate or didn't eat or who would be watching. And I missed out on the moments that right now in my life make me feel alive, present, like it is, I'm in the gift of existence. So this preoccupation with our appearance is not to say that there is something wrong with you because actually there are some, you know, I would agree with some of the feminist scholars who say, if we hate our bodies as women, we're actually doing everything our culture told us to. We're being a good woman. 
were following all of the instructions that said, you know, just be dissatisfied, do all these things, get stuck in the rat race. And then at some point you'll probably be okay with yourself. If we feel that way, we're just being compliant. So there's nothing wrong, but there might be something more for us. And it might be that those promises that were made about feeling good about ourselves because our body looks a certain way, those promises are empty. The literature, this is such a fascinating statistic that I I think really smacked me in the face when I saw it, but the research shows us that the closer to the appearance ideal that we get, the more anxious about our appearance we get. So we're sold this story that if you look like this, then you're going to be okay. But the truth is the closer we get to that ideal or whatever this story is about the ideal, the more work we have to put in staying there because gosh, now we've worked so hard to get here that we have to stay here because what, who am I if I'm not this? We're chasing it. And the closer we get, the more anxious and distressed, depressed, insecure we get. You know what? That is so fascinating because one of the greatest or the most interesting things that I found when I interviewed those 200 plus women and we, we photographed them without makeup, Photoshop or filters. And you can see some of these interviews are still up on the website. But what I found most fascinating was that it was almost always the women who were closest to the media's beauty ideal that struggled the most with confidence that had often had eating disorders, body image struggles that were most concerned about aging because so much of their value and worth was surrounding the way that they looked. So much of the attention, the jobs that they'd had, the affirmation from men, like everything was around the way that they look. So the fear of losing that becomes so much more substantial. Yes. What I've been researching for my doctoral work for years now is women who are aging, who are okay and actually love their bodies. Because if you think about it, we've been told youthful is ideal. Like older women disappear. And that's part of where the anxiety comes from. It's like change is inherent in life. It's part of it. There is no version of your body today that is supposed to look like it did 10 years ago. That's not how life works. You're trying to live in a time machine. So we, we never see aging women and they're certainly not portrayed as being beautiful or ideal. So this, we get this idea that we age and then somehow we just disappear or we're worthless. And that's scary if we've bought into the story that our worth comes from being a certain way and looking a certain way. But the truth is actually so much more liberating than anyone ever told us in the media. And that's that women love who they are, even as they're aging even as their bodies are changing. And that's possible. That is possible. We don't have to be afraid. It's okay. But it means doing the work now as we are learning to be okay with ourselves now as we are so that as our bodies keep changing throughout life, we can go, oh, cool. Look at that. <laughs> Instead of, oh my gosh, I need, to, I need to do more to try and make this process of life stop. I need to interrupt aging because it's threatening my sense of security in myself. It's a long, exhausting life on that path, trying to fight aging. And I'm not saying that it's easy with all the messaging that we receive, but as you said, it's totally possible. And that's what we're all working on together. That's why we're launching this course, which Hillary has kindly been sort of reviewing for us. And, you know, we, there's so many people out there right now who are, are there to help. If you're somebody who's like, you know what, I'm, 
on this treadmill. I'm in this rut and I don't want to be here anymore. I don't know how to do this on my own because I certainly couldn't do it on my own. I have had so much help along the way. So whether it's the raw beauty course, whether it's one-on-one therapy with Hillary, whether it's finding somebody in your community, whether it's a best friend or a parent that you can talk to, there are so many options and ways that you can get help with this kind of stuff because we have to join together in order to get through it. Because as I said, the majority of people are going in a different direction. So we got to band together, girls. We got to work together. Right. I have a, another question as a mom, and, and I know so many of our listeners are moms, but how can we support our kids, both boys and girls, in feeling confident in their own bodies and as individuals? Yeah. So I want to say a few things that actually come out of another area of research that I've done. I think some listeners might know I've written a book called Mothers, Daughters, and Body Image, which reviewed my research, extensive research for one of my graduate degrees in this area. And so this is not just some good ideas I got in the shower, but we've got some science behind this. So I hope it has a little bit of credibility. But we've got a theory about how messages are sent from parents to their kids about bodies. And The two ideas are modeling and direct communication. So direct communication is very simply, do you say to your kids, don't eat that, you're going to get fat. Do you say to your kids, oh, you know, that doesn't look good on your body. It doesn't, you know, you know, do we say things directly like that? But then there's the modeling. So when we are as parents place a scoop on our plate and two scoops on everybody else's plate, what do kids see about how much we're eating? What do kids see about what we do and how we talk about our bodies when when we don't think that they're watching? So we need to be really careful that the messages that we want kids to take away are things that we are believing for ourselves. And so one of the most significant things you can do to give your kids a good body image is to start working on your own. And that means that you are catching what you're saying about yourself, catching what you're thinking about yourself. And here's a little hot tip. I think it's a good hack for this, but asking yourself, if you think something about yourself, if you wouldn't want your kids to say it about themselves now or ever, don't say it. It's not okay. And that gets to be your kind of your golden rule to live by. I cannot believe things about myself that I wouldn't ever believe for anyone else or wouldn't want them to believe about themselves. And in that way, you're kind of using your unconditional love for your kids as a strategy to learn to love yourself unconditionally. It's like you're borrowing from that unconditional love and translating it into what you do for yourself. What's fascinating about this like modeling direct communication thing is in my research, what I found was that I asked mothers and daughters the same questions And I asked mothers, you know, what messages do you think you passed on to your daughters about body image? And the mom said, oh, I think I said, you know, you're beautiful and your body's fine in any size. And, you know, these moms were pretty confident that they'd said either not much or or good things. And when I asked the daughters, what messages did your mom pass on to you about her body and women's bodies and your body? They all said things that their moms never even knew happened. They said, I remember seeing my mom getting dressed in the morning and seeing her stuck in, stuck in her stomach in front of the mirror because her, you know, she didn't like how her pants fit and then grimacing and saying, gosh, I just can't lose the weight. You know, there are things that daughters were seeing their moms doing when moms didn't even know they were watching. And the daughters were picking up on this incongruence, like, well, you're saying this out loud, but you're doing this other thing 
And that is confusing. It's sending me some messages like, oh, these are the right things to say as a feminist mom, or these are the right things to say as a mom who loves your kids, but I'm seeing the way you treat yourself and it doesn't really match up. So doing your own work, I can't understate that enough, is one of the most important things you could do for your kids. Now, I'll try and rattle off a few things that are a little bit more practical, but teaching intuitive eating. So helping kids listen to their bodies and see that their bodies more than just appearance, but actually bodies are this wealth of wisdom. Bodies are the place where life happens. Bodies are where feelings happen, where pleasure, where creativity, where all of that happens. And, and our bodies send us messages like I'm hungry, I'm full. And learning to listen to that means that you're teaching your kids to be in tune with themselves and to listen to their bodies. And Another thing is teach your kids media literacy and critical thinking. That can mean when you're watching media together, you can say, whoa, how come there's only white women on that TV show? Or, whoa, we're like, we're the girls who have different size bodies. That's kind of strange. You know, nobody in your class looks like that. It's weird to see a whole TV show full of kids who look like that. Questioning that and getting them to notice problems in media. I've often coached parents to sit down with their kids and show them before and after photoshopped or edited images, just so kids are getting a sense of realizing what they're seeing is not quite real. Teach yourself self-compassion and teach them self-compassion so that when life comes, you know, when hard things happen in life or they feel shame about themselves, that they know how to bring themselves out of that shame without adding more shame to their bodies. So for example, like even if you technically, if you have a positive body image, you're still going to have hard body image days. You're still going to have those messages where you go, oh, that really hits deep and it makes me feel bad about myself. But we want kids to know how to get out of that and how they get out of it by being loving and compassionate with themselves instead of saying, oh, I guess I got to change my body to be a good enough then. And then my last thing is what I'd suggest is teaching ex experience of the goodness of the body. So not just saying things about bodies, but roll down the hill and get grass stains on your jeans. Go for a bike ride and feel the hot, hot sweat and sun on your neck. Jump into the ocean, like climb a tree and do those things with your kids and let them do those things. Because when we have an experience of our body as this place where life happens, then we can remember on a deep, deep intuitive level that we are more than just our appearance, that our bodies are good, are this vehicle to connection with life and vitality and experience and adventure and opportunity. Mm, all such incredible tips and so practical. If people want more information from you, they should definitely get your book. Where else can they connect with you so that they can you know, continue getting these updates from you and all of your beautiful lessons? Oh, thank you, Erin. So a uh, place that people can find me is on my website, hillarylmcbride.com. And as we were talking about, I'm just wrapping up my PhD. So I haven't been taking clients for a little while, but I will be taking private clients. So you'll be able to find me on my website and we can do some work there. Uh, Twitter, Hillary L. McBride, Instagram, Hillary Leanna McBride, my book, Mothers, Daughters, and Body Image for clinicians out there. I've written with a colleague of mine, a textbook about working with eating disorders in the body. And then two places to hear a little bit more of my work on an audio format would be a podcast I've done with CBC called Other People's Problems, where we've recorded my work doing therapy with my clients. And then I drop in and do a little bit of voiceover stuff and talk about what's happening in the session. So clients have given us permission 
to use the audio so that people could hear what therapy is like if they haven't been or want to learn from it. I love this, by the way. I love this. This needs to be a reality TV show because I feel like it's therapy is this like has this veil over it. And it's like people are like, oh, my God, what happens in there? And you lie on a couch and like you're a maniac. And that is so not the reality of what it is. And like, sometimes you cover some hard topics, but it's so, it's one of those things like we were talking about at the beginning that is, that fills you up. That's right. You never leave regretting it. You always leave, I find, feeling like the tangle of life is not so tangled anymore. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you so much, Erin. And lastly, I'm on a podcast called The Liturgists, and we tackle topics from the angles of science, art, and faith and look at the intersection of those things and all, all sorts of stuff in life. So lots of places to find me and would love to hear from you if this connected to you in some way. And just so looking forward to your course, Erin, being out. I've loved reading through it, and I can't wait for everyone to get get their hands on it. I'm so excited to share it and feel so grateful to have somebody like you doing the review. And I feel like we're going to have to have you back on this podcast because you just have so much information. And so we'll, we'll definitely get you back on here again. I also want to mention that Hillary and I both sit on the board for an incredible program called Free to Be that is by Renee Regeer. And we've sat on the board for a few years now. And this program is absolutely amazing for any parents, teachers, therapists out there. It's a research-based media literacy and positive body image program for students in grades six to eight. You can go through a training program so that you can actually facilitate the program in schools and classrooms or to, you know, your own groups of kids in your community. And it's very accessible from a financial standpoint, and it's full of incredible content. I'm pretty sure it's a seven-week program, and each week is about an hour long and you've got activity books. Uh, I mean, it's, it's really amazing stuff. My goal, I would love to see this in every, in every school and I would love every student to go through it at some point. Yes. So I'm with you. Yeah. Okay. Amazing. Well, thank you so much for being here today, Hillary. All right. And just a reminder, if you are ready to overcome the battle with your body and food to head on over to rawbeauty.co backslash webinar to hold your spot in our free online training, head to rawbeauty.co backslash webinar. I have a spot for you. That is it for this episode, but be sure to hit subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss a single show. Next week's episode is a good one. If you liked this episode, please take a moment to leave us a review. I read every single one or take a screenshot and share it on social tagging at raw beauty talks. We'll be regramming your posts every week. As we wrap things up, remember your body is different than any other body out there. So as you listen to these episodes, keep tuning back into yourself to see what truly resonates. Do you ever feel like you're struggling through motherhood? You're not alone. I'm Erica Jossa, host of the MomWell podcast, therapist and mom of three. Join me each Wednesday as I sit down with guests, including psychologists, pediatricians, psychiatrists, fertility specialists, lactation consultants, and more to unravel the myths of motherhood. With expert advice, practical tips, self-love, and some coping skills to help you along the way, you can become the mother you want to be. Listen to the MomWell podcast at momwell.com slash listen or on your favorite podcast platform.